0: Hello, Um, my name is Robert Buckingham, and on behalf of the Naomi Milgram Foundation and M Pavilion, I'd like to welcome you to this M Talk. Um, As uh, as most of you know, M Pavilion is an initiative of the Naomi Milgram Foundation in partnership with the state government through Creative Victoria, uh, the City of Melbourne, and ANZ. Um, M Pavilion is designed as a public space for the whole of Melbourne and our program is devised in partnership with architects, designers, cultural organisations and design uh, education. Um, this place has been a meeting, meeting point for thousands of years and we would like to acknowledge the Bunurong people as the traditional owners on the land in which we gather um, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and into the future. Tonight I'm delighted to welcome Mr Christopher Sanderson back to M Pavilion. Chris uh, first spoke at M Pavilion in 2014 and is a great supporter and friend of the project. As founder of the UK trend forecasting company, The Future Laboratory, Chris visits uh, Australia on a regular basis as part of his international consulting with major brands in the luxury retail, travel, media, design and planning sector. Chris is responsible for delivering the Future Laboratories' extensive global roster of conferences, media events and LSN global trend briefings, co-presented with with teams in London, New York, Sydney, Melbourne, Stockholm and Helsinki. He's one of the best informed and constantly curious people I know and his ideas and insights are always fascinating. Um, Chris has kindly agreed to speak at M Pavilion tonight on the subject... Creative Citizens Equal Creative Cities, which is part of a month-long series of events uh, at M Pavilion that discuss the ways to create smart, creative cities. Um, Some of our events have been called Blanket Talks due to the need to rug up. Um, So if anyone's feeling a little bit chilly, um, have a chat to our staff and I think we may have a spare rug. Um, But now it's over to the hardy Englishman, Mr Chris Sanderson.
1: Uh, good evening, everyone. Robert, thank you very much indeed for that very lovely welcome. Um, thanks, first of all, to uh, Naomi Milgram and the Milgram Foundation and Robert and his team for inviting me to speak to you today. It's a real pleasure to be back here on this site uh, in Melbourne once again. Um, and really for us to have slightly lucked out on the weather, uh, given what it was like uh, this morning and into this afternoon. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here in these uh, uh, slightly warmer than anticipated uh, uh, kind of times and evenings. Um, well, um, as Robert said, uh, the, the subject uh, for conversation is this idea of uh, creative citizens and creative citizen, uh, cities. So I'm going to be looking at this notion. I'm just going to put my teeth down first, actually. I'm going to be looking at uh, the notion of creative citizens and how cities, when we interact with them in particular ways, I think, can start to make us more creative as people. So, this whole idea of, of how we think about the city and the, the person, the, the environment in which we find ourselves, is absolutely what I want us to start to consider. Now, argue, arguably, it's people that make cities creative um, as flaneurs, as boulevardistes, or as city as living organ philosophers. If we think back to that great American writer Jane Jacobs you know, who will tell you that we have to allow for moments of accident, serendipity and the chance to be part of a city's plan. All of those things that maybe we have to consider because cities, it has been argued, and creative cities especially, aren't really engineered at all. They develop often despite a planner's best efforts, whether that planner uh, be commercial or of course be public, be part of a government. And usually, because of a place's software, us, the people, rather than its hardware, its buildings and its infrastructure, it becomes something that changes it, and it becomes something else. And as writers like Jane Jacobs, but also some of her contemporaries, who I'm going to talk about a little bit later, like Lewis Mumford, not as well known these days, but I think just as interesting in some ways as Jane Jacobs, as they both rightly identified, it's often the gridded, the planned, and the structured Element of a city that actually removes removes the adjectives of living from the very area in which we find ourselves living. Now, I think the issue for me is that a lot of the debates that we saw around this idea of the grid and the city, planned or unplanned, and this word that also has a really important resonance, uh, complexity, is actually quite an old argument. So what I'm hoping to do in the time that I've got with you is to think about how we can move this conversation on a little bit. And of course, the key thing that helps us to do that is ICT, the Information Communication Technology Revolution that we've all lived through. And technology, as we're going to see, will play a positive or a negative role in the development of our cities, but also especially in the creativity of our cities. If we see apps like Detour, which actually allows us to dip into a city through a walk, a guided tour that uses 3G, that uses location-sensitive software, to enable us to take a deeply personal and often highly emotional and experiential visit through the back streets or the front streets of the city where we'll find that tour. ...how CCTV cameras that some of us are incredibly nervous about... ...that watch us and mark out not just our every movement... ...but increasingly can also sense our every mood... ...might now be regarded as a bonus by the flaneur... ...who sees them as an opportunity in front of which they can actually perform... ...and to have their very act of lounging or lolling at a street corner... ...often regarded as suspect and borderline illegal... Become something that is actually political, indeed artistic, and a way of intentionally recording the act of enjoying the city for a poetic, a creative, or dramatic reason, but is also noted by the authorities. So, creative cities equals creative citizens. Or is it creative citizens equals creative cities? Which way round should it be? Does it make a difference? Is it this idea that actually in the Anthropocene era, man dictates environment and not vice versa? That of course is our triumph over the environment, that we increasingly are in control. Now, the use of this word Anthropocene is relatively recent and I mean relative on the grand scale of things. Most of us know what Jurassic means thanks to a certain film, and we understand what this geological period or era or epoch in history represents. Many millions of years ago, a different time on this planet, where we were, in fact, not even around. But most of us aren't so familiar with the term Anthropocene. Now, if we were to think about the history of this planet as a 12-hour clock, Anthropocene would probably be at about 1159 and 58 seconds it represents just the merest blip on our planetary history and yet it defines the geologic period during which human activity has been the dominant influence on both climate and the environment it marks a very important change the fact that we actually now do have a geological impact On this planet, we don't just live on it and scratch its surface. We actually change the nature of the planet that we're on. Now, how do we know this? Well, about four years ago, they discovered in Hawaii a new rock formation. And it's been called Plastiglomerate. Because it is a rock, most definitely. It's an igneous rock. So it's therefore a fairly recent rock, but it has combined with plastic. It is a combination both of the man-made and the planet-made, and it could only have been created during the period in which man is having an impact on his environment. So for many of us, the Anthropocene marks the beginning of the end. But maybe for those of us that are half full kind of people, it actually marks the end of the beginning and the start of something new, the start of a different epoch in which man can have a hugely positive and beneficial impact on the world that is now most definitely both man and woman made. Now, Geoffrey West, the theoretical physicist who specializes in mathematical and theoretical biology and its application to the modeling of cities, that's why he's relevant, talks about the idea that cities are the crucible of civilization this notion itself i think is part of an analysis and an understanding of the growth of human activity on the planet that we moved towards the idea that by congregating together we had both security and safety but we also then started to have a more engaged impact as communities as groups of people who could work together towards a common goal hence the very first constructions of cities that we've seen many thousands of years ago. But really, if we think again in more recent terms, we still often think of civilization as being something that can, can happen, especially, I think, in artistic and creative terms away from or apart from the city. We think about the idea of the artist, for example, who needs peace and quiet and tranquility in order to create their work. This idea that we move away from the hustle and bustle of the city in order to create, in order to engage with the creative process. But really, isn't it time maybe that we eschewed the ideal that getting away from it all is to return to the natural state of being human? That in fact, to be human is to be civilized, and to be civilized is to live in a city. In 2014, Homo sapiens not just passed an important milestone but also reached a tipping point. We became globally an urban species for the first time in our history. That is, more of us now live in towns and cities and urban conurbations than live in rural environments. That denotes a massive change in the way that all of us on this planet think about our future and, in fact, the way that the trends are showing us indeed where we are going. If we think about this idea that environment impacts on personality, we, of course, come up with some very interesting and, I think, relevant words. We talk about the idea of being urbane. We talk about the nature of being cosmopolitan and as more and more of us actually have a cosmopolitan nature and are in fact urbane through the very process of actually living in an urban environment then we do start to alter and rethink what it means to be civilized a couple of statistics for you some 54 percent of the world's population now reside in cities that figure will shift to about 85% by 2050. This figure is expected to rise to 90% in Latin America by 2050. More than 331 million people in the developed world will live alone by 2020, an increase of around 20% between 2011 and 2015. So the idea of what it means to live in a city is changing. The aspiration to live in a city is changing. But also the structure of the social groups that defined communities and defined a household continue to also morph and change and adapt. Let's remember as well that to be single is no longer necessarily a curse. In fact, increasingly... Many of us choose to live single lives, and it's something that we actually aspire to. We live alone for longer, and of course, we're also living alone for longer at two important stages of our lives. We're doing it as we grow up, as we move from often being a teenager and our period of studies to then, of course, boomeranging back to live with our parents, which is the new prevalent trend indeed in the U.S., Uh, More people now live at home between the ages of 18 uh, to 34 than have done for the last 130 years, such as the pressure um, of the cost of living that we now see in many developed economies. But we also can expect to live alone for longer when we reach our 50s and our 60s and our 70s, and of course into our 80s and 90s and even beyond, as the change in our life structure has an impact Um, a second time all over again. So that idea of the structure of what it means to be an individual, I think, is also part of how we have to think about our relative engagement in this complex issue of city and creativity. Now, Lewis Mumford, who was a contemporary of Jane Jacobs, an American sociologist and historian, I think often made more tacit connections between the notion of the accidental city and this idea of structure and conformity, and then also the idea of the the role that this plays in the generation of a very important topic, social capital, the key ingredient, I think, in recognising how we create cities that are culturally and creatively relevant. And he talked about this at length in his 1961 treatise, The City in History, in which he says... The chief function of the city is to convert power into form, energy into culture, dead matter into the living symbols of art, and biological reproduction into social creativity. So he was writing at the same time of Jane Jacobs, who of course is best known for her work, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, and both of them promulgated at this point this idea of the notion of social capital. So this change in thinking after, obviously, that that boom that we started to experience in the 50s in many Western economies, the the boom that we saw in terms of of capital development and the importance of financial and economic stability and growth that many countries enjoyed. But at that point, we saw sociologists and economists beginning to challenge that idea of of economics for economic sake and the importance, again, of it back to principles of capitalism and what the value of creating economic capital was all about that really intrinsically was only a valuable it was only a value if it actually increased the, the social capital and in fact the emotional capital of the citizens um, of the communities that it was part of. So this idea of, of the importance of social capital is hugely important if we want to understand really um, this notion of creativity in the city. Now, both Jacobs and Mumford were united. They didn't agree on everything, but they certainly agreed in the late 1950s on many urban issues. Both strenuously, for example, fought the New York urban expressway builder, Robert Moses, who was one of these developers that really was about looking at the idea of urban renewal. And I put great big quotation marks around this idea of urban renewal because it's still something that we, um, I think, often have to tackle in many cities. And we see it here, I think, often in uh, Melbourne, this idea of what urban renewal represents, but also the damage that it can do to our environments. Now, their differences had more to do, I think, with this idea of the cure for urban plagues, or particularly this idea that Jacobs talked about, which was that, that how to actually deal with the emotional problems that she saw cities actually creating in the late 1960s. For her, um, her focus was really this idea of, um, uh, of coming to grips with what she called urban form and this idea of how important it was to recognize the humanity that a city should possess. So she talked a lot in her work about the notion of organized complexity. She loved the idea of how you could create systems that would enable people to do things There was a sort of unplanned casualness for her in the idea of what urban life should be about. She focused very much on the street, how to make it safer, how to enhance human contacts on it, how to make a place for assimilating children, for example, how to actually promote family. And for her, often a blight, the urban plague, was actually the very things that many planners and often many male planners were trying to create. Parks, squares, planned Urban forms. She had often a real, um, uh, a guarded scepticism at best for these environments, and I think she did express, obviously, a very female view in the way that she thought about urban planning and the idea of the city and the creative city. Mumford, on the other hand, had a far more structured and a far more left-brained approach to the development of the urban environment. Again, from the city in history in 1961, he cites that the city is in fact in nature, like a cave, a run of mackerel, or an ant heap. But it's also a conscious work of art, and it holds within its communal framework many simpler and more personal forms of art. Mind takes form in the city, and in turn, urban forms condition mind. Urban forms condition mind. So, this sense potentially that again we see this idea of this age old argument that form follows function. Are we again arguing about this classic nature versus nurture argument that seems to be at the heart of so many of our discussions of understanding the complexity of human behavior, the recognition of the man or, as I've said, woman made? Now, where I begin to struggle with so much of these debates and these conversations that still have a profound impact on the way that we think about our cities and how so many people, the strategists and analysts and planners who are involved in reshaping our cities, is the fact that I now believe they present very 20th century solutions to some very 21st century problems. I think we're clearly now at a a tipping point, another tipping point, for what is being recognised as the third wave of globalisation. And this third wave is now about us, but us as individuals. The first and second waves, of course, were about countries and about corporations. Briefly, if we look at the last 250 years of human history and we started a date somewhere around 1780 and we think about the beginning of the industrial revolution and our ability to mechanize certain manual tasks and therefore to bring human labor together in order to to actually undertake these tasks in return for remuneration and therefore the beginning of the real structure of our cities the growth of a working class of a, 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 of a manufacturing class and of a middle class of a merchant class and the rewarding of a merchant class, and we see how that impacted, therefore, on the structure of our towns and cities, obviously, firstly, across Europe. We then saw the development of how those towns and cities started to become corporations. They started to become uh, uh, businesses, but they also allowed for the introduction of the idea that countries could start to move abroad in order to grab land to actually start to do more of the idea of creating corporations and creating mechanized environments in which they could either take the land, take the resources, or continue to build and mechanize and manufacture and produce. But now here we are in the 21st century, and our global revolution is about what we as individuals do. And that global individual revolution is about our ability to become a global citizen and that that isn't just paying lip service to the idea that we're all part of a touchy-feely world in which we all feel part of what's going on in every corner but it is about the idea that each of us now through the importance of information communication technology can have a global reach we can all have a global audience we can all if we choose become a global buyer and a seller a trader we all have the opportunity, through our phone or our tablet, to trade in ideas, but also to trade in products and to do that with whoever we choose. So this sense of a, a truly global revolution, an individual revolution, changes the way that we have to think about our role as citizens, not just within our locale, but on a much bigger scale and truly on a global sphere. So I would argue that 20th-century top-down style planning is no longer fit for purpose and that future citizens will be expected to be co-creators, really, for their urban spaces, but also for the urban species. Well, that will lead, I think, to some very interesting propositions. And for me, the 21st-century proposition is that we need to think not necessarily more like creatives but more like designers. Now, you could argue that's just semantics, that what's the difference between a creative and a designer? Well, I would say there's a huge difference between the creative process and the design process in terms of the way that you think, the way that you respond, and the way that you deliver. The designer approach, I think, is about innovation, ideation, and iteration, that it is a process. In a, in a markedly different way from how we can be creative and express creativity now this notion of creativity but also I think of designing solutions is something that we have begun to consider and assess here in the 21st century if you think back to Richard Florida's seminal work in 2002 the rise of the creative class we started to look at this idea of how a new wave of individuals, of citizens, were changing some of the areas in our towns and cities that were bereft of culture, bereft of creativity, but also bereft from often an economic perspective. And it was the idea that he'd begun to notice how a new group of individuals were often moving into the poorest parts of a town and city to take them over, to change the environment, to change the community and start a new process of creating new types of industry and new types of community. And central to his premise or his, his understanding of this change in our towns and cities was the understanding of deviancy. And he talked about the notion of deviant culture. And he used this word in its truest sense, the idea that a deviant is somebody who is, of course, one step away from the norm. They are not doing things that normal people do. Normal, of course, being what the majority do. So it doesn't necessarily mean deviancy in terms of the way we see it being used in popular culture. It really is far more simply about this idea of doing something that doesn't fit in with a normal process or that follows the mainstream. Now, of course, since that work, we've continued to understand, and this is, of course, exactly what the hipster movement defined, how a group of people could actually buck a trend, go back to an old way of doing things, reinvent or innovate, and often revive a particular quarter or a part of our town that was down at heel, unloved, and often underused. But of course, as we've begun to find out where the hipster went, the realtor, the realtor or the real estate agent, as we say in the UK, very quickly followed. So the beards and the buns and the bikes were followed by a very different tribe who understood how to make money out of a change of environment and a new creativity that once might have started with a small coffee shop but was very quickly aped and introduced um, by a brand like Starbucks. But where we've come from 2002, I think, to now is a very interesting place because we've begun to understand that that creativity that defined the black-collar worker that Richard Florida talks about is the role that technology is now very clearly playing in this change in the way that we think about how creativity infects our spaces. He noticed and began to notice that technology, the mobile, the laptop, Wi-Fi, actually facilitated this creative process in a way that hadn't been imagined or even considered before. It allowed deviancy to flow through the city, not just through the activities of an individual, but in a much more prolific way. No need, in some ways, for the traditional CBD, for the fixed office, or the expensive infrastructure. Instead, we began to move towards the concept of the mobile city, or the city with creative ley lines, as well as cultural ones. And this idea of how we would see the low-rent, high-opportunity neighbourhood that was all about serendipity and diversity and the chance to reinvent how and where and why we work to a very different environment that was no longer about that idea of the fixed idea that generating income would therefore benefit everyone. It was a shift in terms of how we thought about social capital and also this idea of altruistic capital. Now, all of this, I think, is only possible when we begin to understand the true nature of our cities and the technologies that we use in them, and we start to embrace it. And we do maybe go back to this term that um, uh, Jane Jacobs used, of this understanding of human complexity and simple complexity. And maybe we do start to think about the role of unplanned complexity. And that's why I've always been struck by this notion of the flaneur or flaneurism. The flaneur, of course, being the individual who saunters around observing society. That is their role, simply to observe. That perhaps best understands the real changes that have started to take place in some of our cities. This ability to almost engage with the gastronomy of the eye. Now, the flaneur very firmly belonged to the 19th century. A time, of course, in which one could very easily be beguiled by energy, change, movement, flux, and flow of all kinds. And of course, it was in a time such as the 19th century that men like Balzac believed that the heart of a city should really beat to its movements, to its dirt, to the brush of people, to the sounds, the colors, and the movements that you would find at this deeply exciting time, a time of change. But also, of course, it was the time when planners and architects like Baron Haussmann in Paris believed that his grand boulevards and grids and crossroads were really the way that a city should move forward, that that was about progress and that was about change and development. Whereas the poet Baudelaire believed that Paris was indeed becoming less creative because of what Haussmann was doing, that it was less creative, less anarchic, because there were less corners, and therefore, less opportunities to bump into people. And it was this simple sense that serendipity and coincidence was about suddenly discovering or falling almost literally upon someone. And I think it was at this point in history that we really started the great struggle between creativity and the city and this argument between the planner and the poet and this idea of the cosmopolis and the common man. I think it's important, therefore, to understand the nature of cities in terms of size compared to the master plan and the master planning that we've seen often govern what we've lived in for the last 300 years. How we move towards an architecture of nudge and complexity, the power of place versus how places become powerful. The role that the digital plays to enliven and sharpen our sense of serendipity and chance the way that increasingly our cities become more linear, more searchable, and often therefore less interesting, less depth, less layers. Because really, if we think about the periods in history that we admire the most and that we focus on the most when we think about the deviant or the creative, we actually always associate those as being more important than to times that are about great commercial leaps forward. So I'm thinking about London in the 18th century um, and that period of of, of enormous change, the re-enlightenment. I'm thinking about Paris in the 19th century, where again we thought about the artists who defined the process of Impressionism and the huge changes that we saw with the growth and the understanding of modern art at the late Uh, at the end of the late 19th century and into the 20th. Berlin in the 30s, or New York in the 60s and 70s. Explosions of culture and creativity all coming together. And back to Jacobs and Mumford once again, they made more tacit connections between the notion of the accidental city and the neighbourhood and city and the role that this plays in social capital, this key ingredient that we now recognise as making cities more culturally and creatively important. So whilst we accept that a more organic approach often to the development and the growth of our cities is hugely important, a more human approach and the desire to make them therefore more livable and more culturally appealing and therefore hopefully increasingly more creative, we do understand that we can't reverse the last 200 years or 150 years as we may look at in the case of Melbourne and it's gridded planning. Or can we? When we look at a writer like Charles Landry, um, He being uh, a professor, an urban planner and writer, best known for his 1995 work that looked at the idea of the creative city uh, described as a toolkit for urban planning. I think we start to understand that technology, the cloud, apps, mobiles and laptops, actually will allow us to develop or create virtual cities that often sit across and over the real city, and help us to interact with it, often I think in new and challenging ways, in ways that should and will allow us to bring back chance, serendipity, adventure, and story to the city and how we live within it. So if we can't actually change the structure that might be 100 years old, 50 years old, 30 years old, or even 20 years old, we can actually alter the structure that we live with through the engagement of technology. Now, in his more recent work, The Digitized City, Charles Landry said, we're in the midst of redesigning the world and all its systems, legal, moral, and political, as well as the economy and our infrastructures for a digital age with ICT as one backbone. Yet our built environment has been been designed for how we lived and worked 50 years ago and more. A reverse engineering process is necessary to adapt to the digital age and to create infrastructures that live within its hard engineered fabric. Can you reverse engineer a city successfully? Or do you have to tear it all down and start again? Well... Luckily, I think all of us are aware aware of the importance and the power of place. And we do often have very good examples of how place can exert an enormous influence over the way that we behave and the way that we decide to live in a city. But also, I think... Technology is changing the way that we think about how we interact on a daily basis, and it's changing the way that we respond to the other people that we live with in our towns and cities. Technology is actually, I believe, creating the desire for a more tactile and a more face-to-face approach in many situations. Jeff Speck, the urbanist and author of The Walkable City, would argue that the more disassociated we are from each other in our work and in our means of communication, the more we seek out an an environment that fosters physical interactions. The need that we have, the basic human need, to look people in the eye, to have a conversation, to shake somebody by the hand, to give them a hug, to engage in that process of being human. So the future of the Creative City, I believe, will be about balancing the digital and the physical space and harnessing the benefits of both. And indeed, there are many creatives who would agree with me and argue along the same lines. Hans Ulrich Obrist, for example, the artistic director at the Serpentine Galleries in London, says that the celebration of the physical is not a rejection of the digital. It is an integral part of the new digital movement. So maybe this more holistic approach to thinking about how we bring the physical and the digital together to create both a creative citizen and a creative city is what we need to be striving towards. That yes, we actually have to say no to top-down planning imposed by a distant authority and expert. And hopefully we'll see them both play a decreased role in 21st century placemaking. Because we would argue, at the Future Laboratory, that a new cohort of creative citizens is redefining the intersection between space and culture. Commonly called Generation Z or Z, depending who you listen to, not a term we like at the Future Laboratory because it implies it's the end of the line, there's nowhere else to go. So we tend to call them Generation Viz because what we've noticed is that our Primarily younger uh, consumer or or citizen under the age of 25 is increasingly highly visual and visually stimulated. They are, of course, a screenager, used to tapping and swiping and grabbing. And their sense of the visual is often defining how they choose to interact and what they expect which is why we've begun to see the growth of all these digital to, to, digital tools that are rewriting our understanding of experience, whether it be Pokemon Go or a walking tour app like Detour, which I mentioned earlier, and how they're in a- enabling us to have a completely different understanding of what augmented reality means and, by, and also of what it delivers, how in often traditional cultural settings and spaces like a museum and a gallery whether it be the ngv or the cleveland gallery or a gallery in san francisco or london or taipei we increasingly see the use of digital tools that overlay the traditional museum experience the grid to often create surprising intriguing accidental opportunities where we can actually explore and look at a work of art a part of our city a sculpture an installation with new eyes and in different ways. Apps like Smartify, whose makers now work with galleries and museums, or organisations like the City of London Corporation, to overlay public sculpture in the city with different layers layers of history and detail, suddenly allowing us to look at things in a whole a different way, to enable advanced image recognition, to actually uh, allow you to take a picture of a sculpture or a building and suddenly have all the history and understanding of that building and its relevance with an engaging commentary uh, at your fingertips. So an understanding of what virtual reality will do to add creativity into our cities, to enable us to rebuild them, to reimagine them, to reinvest a city with magic and with culture becomes hugely important. Hence, of course, the popularity right now of Pokemon Go. Something that many of us really haven't grappled with or got to understand, but clearly there's a whole generation of us out there for whom this is a really exciting way of exploring a town or a city. Google, of course, playing or using Google Cardboard to allow us to travel virtually to cities that we may never ever actually get to visit. Or a recent one that I've come across that I thought was hugely interesting um, from a company in Arizona called Timefire, who've just announced that they're building an an entire city, a a complete virtual city, which has been called Hypatia. Now, they say that Hypatia will be an immersive social environment that will focus on providing a cultural and educational experience. Now, they've chosen, I think, a very interesting name for this city, Hypatia. It's not only a Greek word, but it's actually a Greek name. And they've named the city after, I think, a very interesting Greek citizen. Hypatia was born sometime between the year 350 and 370 and died in approximately 415. And Hypatia is the first recorded woman, female, intellectual, mathematician, philosopher, and astronomer. So it's interesting for me that they've given this city a female name in recognition of what is called, or or the person that is seen to be, the first female intellectual mathematician and philosopher. I'm sure there were many before her, but she is recorded as the first. But this idea that, as they state on their website, that Hypatia people, sorry, in Hypatia, people will find an environment for exploring and creating all aspects of our potential ranging from music, art, education, mentoring, crafting and exploration, in which we can not only be creators but curators of our emerging world of digital virtual art uh, and that we can find an environment in which community, camaraderie and creativity are imperative and in which we rely on you as a player and as a citizen to create the vast dynamics of this city's culture Becomes, I think, becomes, I think, a fairly interesting premise. It's again where game playing starts to have a role in the idea of the serious object, of the new building blocks of a new 21st city, uh, city, in which we can populate the virtual in the way we do with the real, by using culture, science, tech, and the arts as a driver. This for me is all neatly wrapped up in one word: the importance of the fidgetal. This combination of the physical and the digital, a far more holistic approach to what the two can do, where they creatively and collectively coincide in hopefully a collaborative and enjoyable fashion. Culture, both traditional and contemporary, is increasingly less confined to our 3D environments, like the one we see over there. Increasingly, we are not confining culture to these 3D spaces. We're allowing it, and in fact encouraging it, to spill out onto our streets, into our parks, our, line, our laneways, and our public and commercial spaces. We are no longer sectoring or siloing creativity in the way that we used to. And to go back again to Charles Landry and his book, The Digitized City, cities citizens and the variety of urban leaders have a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity right now here to rebuild our cities in a different way, including harnessing the capabilities of social media, interactive platforms or open data to deepen democracy and to make it more engaging and responsive to people's desires and needs. Landry, I think, is identifying a very important issue that whilst this is a progressive requirement and a progressive need, we are at a pretty important point in our history right now. We've gone through a turn, not just of a century, but also of a millennium. So for me, we're at a landmark point and again, a tipping point. As a new urban species, how do we address the needs not just of the cities that our forebears have created in which we have to live but the legacy that we have to start building for the citizens of the future the first question i'd like to propose to you is a fairly simple one are we using technology to solve rational logical issues about the city planning infrastructure transport etc or are we actually using technology to address, I think, some more interesting questions and issues, like identifying creative hotspots and where creativity is really growing in our city. Are we using technology to identify serendipity corners where we bump into strangers or into old friends and have moments that are actually about the social glue that binds us all together? Are we creating chance encounter alleys Those points in our cities where, again, strange things happen, but where we have deviant creative moments. Or secondly, and perhaps more importantly, are we beginning to think about how our creativity isn't something that we do in isolation or for ourselves as an artist, a performer, a singer, a songwriter, a designer of any type, Are we, in fact, beginning to think how at this point in history, at this juncture, we need to to be using our creativity for a more communal purpose, which is to focus on sustainability and the idea of how if, as global citizens, we aren't actually designing our future, somebody else might be trying to do it for us. We've had an interesting week, haven't we? For some of us, the results of the U.S. election were unsurprising. As a Brit who went through a referenda vote uh, earlier this year, uh, and a term I think some of you may have heard of, Brexit. Have you come across this idea? Um, It was no surprise because, and if we think about some of the things I've mentioned the changes that we're going through, and uh, I think the identification of why this change is happening right now, why we're having to redesign our systems, it's because so much of what we designed in the 20th century is no longer fit for purpose in the 21st. And that doesn't just relate to buildings and three-dimensional structures, it also relates to some of our economic structures and some of our institutional structures. It is this idea that we have to start planning creatively for systems that will allow us to evolve and to flourish in the 21st century. And that requires a creative solution. And it requires the creatives to not focus just on their creative work that is personal, but to come together and to address the solutions that we all need in order to ensure that we meet the requirements of 21st century legacy planning. I'd like to leave you with just one last quote. This is from an Italian writer, Italo Calvino, who in 1972 published his novel, Invisible Cities, in which he describes a conversation between the 13th century adventurer and explorer Marco Polo, as he tells the Emperor Kublai Khan about all the cities he's visited. And the nature of this book is both a complex one and a straightforward one because it deals with the idea of describing a city but also it deals with the notion of the fantasy city that you can create in your mind and so one is never sure in this book whether Marco Polo is actually relating truth or actually outlining fantasy and possibility and in the book Italo Calvino through one of his characters says cities like dreams, are made of desires and fears. Even if the thread of their discourse is secret, their rules are absurd, their perspectives deceitful, and everything conceals something else. Thank you very much. Do we have a question? Any response or repost? We are numbed into acquiescence. Well, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you for listening and continue to enjoy, I think, this fascinating series of discourses on creative citizens and creative cities. Thank you.